My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Laws Podcast, we listened to an interview of me by Eugene Purier and Sean Blackman that originally aired on Radio Sputnik out of Washington, D.C. on January 24th, 2019. Very happy to be joined for this conversation by Dr. Philip Stinson, Associate Professor of Criminal at the Criminal Justice Program at Bowling Green State University. Dr. Stinson, thank you so much for being back with us. Oh, as always, it's a pleasure. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a, a pleasure for us to always have you. And uh, I want to start here with some of the maybe high-profile issues coming out of the city of Chicago here relating to the La- 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 Laquan McDonald murder. Uh, Jason Van Dyke, of course, convicted and then uh, sentenced recently, but the officers who were uh, tied to a, a the original cover-up were uh, uh, set free in their trials. So a lot of things here and a lot of things that were uh, uh, swirling around this case, I mean, starting maybe with Jason Van Dyke, I mean, on the one hand, relatively rare case of an officer being convicted and an officer involved shooting Dr. Stinson. On the other hand, uh, some in the city of Chicago saying maybe a relatively light sentence for what he was convicted of. Uh, and I mean, certainly seems like kind of a mixed bag here in terms of how that plays out. And I'm just curious sort of your thoughts about uh, whether or not this is a, 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 a maybe a one-off or a sign of a, of a growing willingness uh, by juries at least and maybe judges and others to hold officers at least somewhat more accountable. I think it's probably a one-off. Uh, it's difficult to tell. And one of the problems that we have in trying to make sense of all this is that we have so few cases where officers are actually charged. So if we go back through the numbers, we now know that between 900 and 1,000 times each year, on-duty police officers across the United States shoot and kill someone. And in my research, going back to 2005, I'm only aware that 98 officers have been charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting where an officer shot and killed someone since 2005. And just 34 of those 98 officers have been convicted. And when we take a close look at those 34 officers who've been convicted, believe it or not, only three were actually convicted of murder charges. The others were convicted of lesser offenses, typically uh, some sort of manslaughter offense of some sort of a lesser offense like that. So we just have three officers that I'm aware of since 2005 who've actually been convicted of murder. There were four others in New Orleans, but their murder convictions were overturned. And ultimately, those officers actually got lengthy prison sentences in federal crimes that they were convicted of in the federal court system. So when we, we look at the uh, three officers who've been convicted of murder in the last several years, we've got James Ashby, Rocky Ford Police Department in Colorado. We've got Roy Oliver with the Bald Springs Police Department in Texas, and now we have Jason Van Dyke in Chicago. And frankly, in all three of those instances, the officers received sentences, prison sentences, that that seem a little light. So Ashby serving a 16-year prison sentence, Roy Oliver serving a 15-year sentence, and now we have Jason Van Dyke who was uh, sentenced to an 81-month prison term, so just under seven years in prison. And and the way the law works in Illinois, my understanding is he could actually only end up serving three to four years. He'll get credit for time served since he's been incarcerated uh, before he was convicted. So it's not going to be too awfully long before Jason Van Dyke potentially is released from prison. These do seem like short sentences. I should point out that in some of the other cases where officers were convicted in these cases, but not of murder charges, that they actually are serving longer sentences. For example, there was a, an officer from uh, Louisiana who's serving a 
a 40-year sentence on a manslaughter conviction where a six-year-old boy was killed. So we've got a lot of different things going on here. We've got such a small number of cases that it's really difficult to make sense of it in terms of any inferential statistics or any conclusions that we can draw. But I would like to point out that my understanding of the Illinois statute for second-degree murder, which is what Jason Van Dyke was convicted of, would call for a prison sentence generally of four to 20 years. And in some instances, it is possible that somebody actually get a probation sentence with no period of incarceration. So believe it or not, his sentence, although seemingly light, and it's on the on relatively the low end of that, it is within the framework of what we would expect and what's appropriate under the statute uh, in Illinois. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and you know, the, the, the other question that was sort of coming out of this, or, or maybe not coming out of this, uh, but uh, that's certainly related to this, and maybe uh, whether there are major changes happening or these things are one-offs, was the trial of the three officers that had been implicated in the cover-up and, and just getting off scot-free, which I think many people felt was you know, somewhat shocking, given the differences between their accounts and what was actually on the video. But this concept of the, the code of silence in the Chicago Police Department, the thin blue line, people call it. I mean, I think we've most people have heard of some of the element of this conduct and how that essentially is, is perhaps remaining intact and speaking to maybe the challenges in really uprooting, you know, not just looking at the issue per se of why the, the officer-involved shootings are happening, but uh, the reason why ranks are so often closed around police misconduct, uh, that really uprooting that uh, is still a continued task for the future. It is a difficult problem, and it is a task that we need to focus on in the future. Uh, I think there's a variety of things that come into play here. One, I think technology is is making a difference, although at a very slow level. I think in years to come, we'll see that video recordings, body cameras, uh, uh, dash cams, uh, everybody's got a video camera in their smartphone, and we've got security and surveillance cameras recording everywhere around us uh, at all times. So I think that's going to make it uh, some difference in terms of peeling back the curtain on the police subculture and the code of silence where we see that, quite frankly, it's not uncommon for officers to be untruthful, to write false things in their reports and in the testimony that they give. So in this case, though, you've got the three officers who were charged with various charges, including conspiracy out of Chicago, all arising out of the the Laquan McDonald murder. An interesting thing here, we have the trial judge, uh, Judge Stevenson, actually issued a 28-page order and decision explaining her rationale as to the uh, acquittal from the bench trial with these officers. And, and quite quite honestly, in my reading of that uh, order and decision, it, it's clear that the, the state failed to meet their burden in terms of proving the elements of each of the offenses charged beyond a reasonable doubt. They just didn't do it. They really took a leap. They thought that false things in a report that they were going to somehow be able to show that or, or untrue things in a report that the officer had the intent of uh, falsifying the report. And, and for some reason, they just weren't able to link it up. They weren't able to take it across the bar there to prove their elements of the offenses beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's not an uncommon thing, especially in high profile cases where sometimes prosecutors lose sight of the individual elements that they have to prove in cases. Very few things actually go to trial in the criminal court system. Only about three to five percent of any case where uh, somebody has been charged, anybody, not just a police officer, actually gets to trial. So it's unusual that these cases go to trial, and it's a difficult thing. Uh, I don't know that prosecutors are always prepared to prove their cases in court. They frankly think that most of these cases will be resolved without having to go through 
a trial. But, you know, it's interesting. One of the offenses that the officers, the three officers were charged with were conspiracy charges. So I, I went back and looked at my database and I can tell you that in the 10 year period, 2005 through 2014, we found that there were 199 cases across the country, across the United States, where officers had been charged with a conspiracy offense. It's actually 195 officers. And of those cases, though, we were able to narrow it down, trying to see if we could find some things to compare with these cases out of Chicago. And we found that there were 58 cases between 2005 and 2014 where an officer was charged with conspiracy. And there was also some sort of an allegation of a cover-up or a scandal within the officers employing law enforcement agency. So 58 cases. And what we found there was 34 of those cases resulted in an officer being convicted. But here's the interesting thing about it. When I looked closely at those 34 cases, what we found was the officers were employed by only 11 police departments and sheriff's offices uh, in one instance across the country. And it's the usual suspects. It's, it's, it's really interesting. So I'll give you uh, some of those agencies, the San Francisco Police Department, the Baltimore Police Department, the New York City Police Department, the Camden Police Department, the Chicago Police Department, the New Orleans Police Department, and then Los Angeles Sheriff's Office. So it's agencies where we think those are large agencies where potentially we do see problems with uh, the code of silence and cover-ups. But it's even more confusing than that because you have to step back and ask yourself the question, is it possible that the reason we have these cases concentrated in those few agencies is because prosecutors are actually zealous in prosecuting officers and trying to break the code of silence and that the police departments, the police chiefs, are actually aggressive in, in holding officers accountable for police misconduct. And it's very difficult to sort of uh, flesh that out and decide, are these problem departments? Are these actually departments that are trying to do the right thing, at least at the high levels and at the county prosecutor's level? It's difficult stuff to try to digest. Yeah, no, it, it is difficult. And it's, it's a very interesting piece. Uh, I was I don't know if this is a candid moment or not, but the, the day of the, the, the verdict for the three officers, Gary McCarthy was the former uh, police superintendent there is running for mayor now, said, I only lost one case as a police officer, and that was my very first one. I, you know, I knew this was going to be a hard case. He's like, you know, police officers, we learn how to testify and to turn things in our favor. And, and I thought that was like an extraordinary statement. I mean, obviously, he's running for mayor of Chicago and police reform is a big issue. So perhaps it's a, a mea couple of, uh, of sense to say, I understand there are some problems, blah, 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 blah. But I, I thought it was a, a revealing statement as well, though, about this very issue of whether or not it's a problem department or, or whatever it may be, if the former superintendent is basically saying, yeah, to some degree, we are kind of tilting the scales uh, with the way we approach this. I think that's a good point. I uh, had a, an encounter with a, a trial court judge a long time ago now. It was, it was about 30 years ago now. And uh, he made the comment to me that uh, he had a lot of respect for me because when I had been a police officer and testified in his court, that he noted I had many opportunities to lie, but I never did. And I've thought about that for years, thinking, well, that's kind of crazy. Are you telling me that that, that would have been okay or that the expectation was that officers lie? And what, what we now know, frankly, is that, yeah, it's an open secret. You know, Alan Dershowitz wrote about it 
many years ago now in the 90s about Tesla lying, that it's an open secret that police officers in some places routinely lie. When I was a young police officer a long time ago, it was jokingly referred to by officers as creative report writing. The joke was a supervisor would say, well, what are you arresting somebody for? And they'd say, and we'd jokingly respond, well, let me think about it. And by the time we drive uh, down to the booking room at the police station with the uh, the prisoner, we'll, uh, we'll think something up. We'll have something for you as to as the reasons to justify and what charges we're going to come up with. And that's just sort of crazy. And that's anecdotal. It really was a joke. But the bigger story is, yes, when you peel back the curtain here, it seems that it's rather routine that the police own the narrative in these cases. And that's what technology is slowly starting to change. And as said before, a dead man can't talk and that the police no longer own the narratives in these cases, because in the past they would just completely disregard the witness accounts, the testimony and the statements of witnesses and others as being somehow suspect or we're not going to give them the same level that we would a police officer's account of what happened. Times are changing, but I think it's very, very slow. Yeah. And Dr. Stinson, the point you make about police often owning the narrative is an important one. And, And I think along with that, there's this whole issue that when there's an incident of a police misconduct, that it's often a some mechanism within the police institution that is put in place to then investigate. So if we're talking about, you know, true accountability for police misconduct and things like this, do you think that that will have to signal a shift in sort of these, you know, uh, oversight bodies and investigative bodies? Uh, Because, I mean, there's a clear uh, conflict of interest, right, if the police are investigating the police. So it just seems that there would, you know, need to be sort of an essential change there if, you know, the accountability we're talking about is going to become sort of a a regular reality. Well, all policing is local, and we've got about 18,000 state and local law enforcement agencies across the country. And there's so many different permeations here in terms of the way things work in different states and in the District of Columbia. So it's, I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer. It's not as easy as state agency comes in or the local sheriff's office if they're not involved or the state police or the highway patrol. You know, it's, it's very difficult. If we were to take it as far as, you know, special prosecutors, well, then ultimately we'd end up with the same problem we have now with prosecutors, that prosecutors are in it to win they handpick their cases that they choose to go forward with, with any criminal case, and they don't bring cases that they don't think they can win. It's complicated. But, you know, I have noticed uh, one thing, and we saw this play out this week, actually, in uh, uh, Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, where we have uh, two officers who've recently been arrested on multiple crimes where they're accused of sexually assaulting women while they were on duty. And what we see in those types of cases and what I've seen over the last 14 or 15 years in my research is that once a victim, one victim is believed by a prosecutor and that charges are filed by a prosecutor, that an arrest is made against an officer in one of these cases and it gets into the media, as soon as there are media reports that are out there, there's always five more victims for every initial one victim you have that come forward and uh, result in additional charges charges against the officer. So I think that in many instances, people, victims of police misconduct and police violence and police sexual violence are very reluctant to come forward. They don't think they'll be believed. They believe that they'll somehow be retaliated against or punished. 
but that there's sort of, I hate to use a word, it's sort of overused, but empowered by the fact that somebody else has already been believed and they can come forward and tell what happened to them and perhaps uh, make a difference and the officer will be charged as well. Uh, Lots of different dynamics here, but again, no easy fix, Sean. Yeah, no, I mean, I think in talking of no easy fix, uh, you know, one quick, you know, thing to, we've got about three minutes here before we close out, I wanted to raise is, you know, this issue that is increasingly coming up now of, of cities that have started body camera programs and then now are either scaling them back or ending them because they can't uh, afford it or even just raising questions about how sustainable it will be. Uh, and if you just like actually Google body cams cost too much, you actually can find dozens of stories about uh, places all around the country where this is either happening or being raised. I mean, I think. Obviously, there's still a broad discussion about body cams, and I think we've seen uh, that they have, I think, in many ways uh, revealed a lot of things that have been very interesting about both the culture of policing and individual incidents. Obviously, there are other issues out there, civil liberties concerns and the the like, but uh, I mean, this seems— uh, in and of itself to speak to a little bit of the role. I mean, all policing is local and, and sort of when you look at this with the differing level of of who can afford what, like if you start to also have introduced into the, the situation here, almost like a wealth-based differential on police accountability. Well, you know, it's interesting. There was an article earlier this week and you've alluded to in the Washington Post. It was written by a reporter named Kimberly Kindy. And throughout that article, it talked about the prosecutors and police chiefs who were seemingly surprised uh, and exasperated by really high costs of personnel in terms of being able to manage the uh, body cameras. So in other words, if you're getting ready for a trial, you've got to, as a prosecutor's office, make certain disclosures to any exculpatory evidence would have to be turned over to the defense. The defense is going to be making document and production requests for the video files. And it takes a lot of human resources to prepare, to review, and to maintain those video files. It's expensive. Justice is not cheap. And I think that's the bigger issue here is that the advent of these different types of technologies and these different types of recordings that are now very, very expensive just to maintain the server space to keep all these uh, video recordings from officers' body cameras, it's very, very expensive. We're talking many millions of dollars in each of the states and each of the large counties to be able to to handle just the costs involved in these systems, let alone the cost of the storage. So I I think the the answer is not just saying, well, we're not going to keep our body cameras or we're not going to deploy body cameras in the first instance uh, because it's so expensive if you follow through what we have to do down the road with all this. I think the bigger issue is we need to really think about the fact that justice is not cheap and that these are the types of expenses that are going to have to be allocated for by legislature's budgets going forward. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there for now. But as always, Dr. Stenson, really appreciate you joining the show and uh, helping us weed through a lot of these issues. We're going to go to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Laws podcast. It was recorded on January 23, 2019, and originally aired on the Radio Sputnik Show by Any Means Necessary on January 24, 2019. My thanks to Bob Schluber, Eugene Purier, and Sean Blackman. Support for the Police Integrity Loss Podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.